the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. What's the difference between church conflict and spiritual abuse? And then the role of the dinner table in renewing the church. Should parents be left out of their children's gender support plans? And later, you don't have to be a Christian to oppose abortion. You're listening to The Common Good. Friends, happy Tuesday. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today on a beautiful Tuesday afternoon. Aubrey, it's like fall outside today. I kind of like it. This is a... Uh... It is. It's like a little chilly in the air. I, I really like it, too. After we left the studio last night, I went and met a friend for dinner, and I was like, ooh, I'm kind of shivering. And I mean... You know, I I liked it. I don't want it to become winter. I'll be clear about that. But I I liked it. I liked the little dip in the weather. You were more shivering. Last night wasn't that cool. You were more shivering as... Uh, because you and I had just spent hours in a studio that was like a meat locker. <laughs> Our studio is freezing. For well, we just who couldn't don't figure know. it. it we've got it under control now, but we just couldn't figure out the. Bu- yeah, it was uh, two. Pa- how many pastors does it take to try to figure out air conditioning? Is what that was. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, But we're glad that you're with us. If you've missed any of the shows this week, if you can't stay with us the rest of today, uh, go ahead and think about subscribing to our podcast, wherever it is you get your podcast. Just subscribe, rate, review. You can also find us online at 1160hope.com. All right, Aubrey, a a topic you and I cover often, and I want to dive right into it today. It's this idea of spiritual abuse uh, within the church, church abuse, and um this has been growing, uh, and I think you and I both feel like, uh, in a much nece- in a very necessary way, things that were put under the rug before, swept under the rug, are now more um, people are being held accountable. And I would say it really hit its pinnacle with the uh, with the podcast, the rise and fall of Mars Hill, and right, and so right. now when you're on Twitter, when you're reading articles or whatever, a lot of conversation about spiritual abuse, about church abuse, and, and it got me thinking. And you and I touched on this last week, and I believe you said you and Catherine touched on this. But uh, our friend Bob Smetana wrote an article over at Religion News, just asking this question: When does conflict become spiritual abuse? Churches, large mm-hmm. and small, face that question. And he says this: yeah. At the heart of these conflicts is a question: When does a disagreement, an unhealthy culture, or the normal challenges of church life turn abusive? The answer is not always clear, but there is a growing Mm. consensus that spiritual abuse is real and something to be worried about. This is a delicate conversation to have, but I feel like it's an important one to have. How now going forward, do you or we determine what is abuse versus personality conflict versus a a bad leader versus unhealthy church cultures. Because if I'm honest, it does feel like the pendulum has swung a little bit too far to where 
everything is is abuse. And you see this right now with the conversation mm-hmm. about Andy Wood going to Saddleback uh, and a bunch of other conversations right. going on on Twitter. Right. How are you even I'm not even going to ask you, like, what's the answer, Aubrey? But instead, how are you processing kind of this new reality of church life right now? So I, I will say I'm processing it. Like I, I was telling you, I think yesterday, even as we were leaving the studio, like I, I am getting more, I, I am getting more and more uncomfortable with um, what I do feel like is some lines being crossed. Like um, people who, I guess just exactly what this article says at religion uh, news, which is one, when is it just disagreement? When do people sort of just feel frustrated with their pastor's mm-hmm. uh, style? When do they feel not listened to? And they're calling that spiritual abuse. Mm. And I, 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 like you said, this is a delicate conversation because I want to be very clear. Like I, I am grateful that any toxic leadership and any spiritual abuse is coming out into the light. I feel like that is a movement of the Holy Spirit. That is so good. It's hard. It's sad. It's gut-wrenching, but it is so good for the church to own up to her um, her sin and her criminality and her toxicity. Like We have to in order to be who God has called us to be. So I want to be very clear about that. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I am starting to see, and I've used this phrase before, Brian, I think I even got this phrase from you, what is feeling like a cottage industry where anything you disagree with from your spiritual leader is being called abuse. And I that makes me nervous because I just feel like we are destroying the church and tearing down the church any moment we can. And part of it is like, because so-and-so was talking to so-and-so and and that person was toxic. And part of it is because, um, uh, I I don't know. We're just like looking for ways to tear down the church. And I, I think we have to be really careful because there are, there is real abuse. And I think we need to look at this. This article actually talks about this, uh, patterns of coercive and controlling behavior in a religious context, um, where it involves like a system. And we saw this in the Mars, the Mars and fall of rise hill podcast, a system that allows for manipulation, exploitation, enforced accountability, uh, silence, coercion, that kind of thing. So I think if you're looking for patterns and you're looking for a system of this, that is rightfully called abuse. If you're looking for your pastor to be perfect, that's a different conversation. I agree. I agree. Scott McKnight, uh, he wrote along with his daughter, Laura Berenger, they wrote a church called Tove. Uh, McKnight says in the book that they call, quote, power through fear culture at unhealthy churches. That is one way that they define abuse. Uh, but but your whole cottage industry thing, I it's not even this cottage industry to me of like I'm going to like pick at my pastor and say abuse where whatever like have this conversation. It also feels like there are self appointed um, abuse detectives right now, like on Twitter, yeah. who are like yeah. I'm the last yes. word on what that right. church culture is like, and again. Mm. We want to be very careful because we want to say there is a place for that. Mm-hmm. It just feels like to me that it's going too far. And so what ends up happening is that, um, you know, I, it, when everything becomes abuse or too many things become abuse, then you start losing where it really is. So, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't even know how to define it. Like, what are what is it that we should be looking at? Because also, you know. 
sometimes leaders can be mean in your business mm-hmm. world or your that does that's not okay, but it doesn't necessarily. So, what are some things that maybe you would watch out for that you go, you know what, that's a toxic culture, like right there, that is an abusive toxic culture that people need not be a part of. What are the things in your mind that that are red flags? Yeah, I I think some of the things, and I might not have the right words for this, you might have to help me, Brian, but one of the episodes that stood out to me at at Rise and Fall of Mars Hill is when um, some of the elders stood against, like disagreed with Driscoll about something, but then it became those elders on trial, and then they were sort of excommunicated from the church, and then no one spoke to them again. Whatever that system is of like elders not being able to hold their pastors accountable and then being excommunicated... That is dangerously mm. uh, power-hungry abuse. Of course, anytime we're uh, victimizing women and children, I mean, some of those things are kind of obvious, but like it's worth naming because it's happened in the church. Um, and then I, I would say there comes a point when you're pa- if, if a pastor's arrogance, and this is a little subjective, so this is a little bit difficult, um, everyone allows it to go unchecked, mm. right? Everyone allows the pastor to break the rules that the pastor sort of sets for other people. I guess what I'm saying is no accountability. That's and, accountability, you know, yeah. Yeah, only only yes people surrounding the pastor. That would be a problem too. Yeah, we don't, uh, again, we want to be careful to say this is a good thing that the church is wrestling yes. and trying to rid yes. itself of abuse. Yes. And it's natural for the pendulum to go too far. I think our question yeah. is, where does that pendulum settle? Where does it yeah. settle? And how do we have healthy organizations, healthy, healthy churches um, on both sides? And yeah. uh, I, I yeah. think it's a conversation yeah. that we're going to have to continue to wrestle with. As you know, Aubrey and I are both pastors, uh, Aubrey at Renewal Church in West Chicago. I'm at Four Corners Community Church in Darien. Uh, and so this idea of... The, the to use the word of your church, the renewal of the church, the revival, mm-hmm. what's going to bring about, um, you know, we hear a lot of bad stories about churches. We hear a lot of discouragement yeah. around churches. And so it, there's a rightful conversation going on. Okay, what's going to usher in a new season? What's going to bring about renewal? What changes maybe need to be made? All of these things. Some of it goes back to what we just talked about, about abuse and toxic uh, t- uh, toxicity within the church, but what at its foundation will bring about, uh, to use the word that this next tweet is going to use, the renewal of the church. And Dan White, uh, he is the author of a book called Love Over Fear. Uh, also, he, he works with churches. And Dan White, yeah. now, granted, he has a very particular view of what uh, mm-hmm. the church should be doing. So I'm just interested in your thoughts on this. He writes this, the renewal of the church will not start with microphones on stages. It will start with meals around tables. The renewal of the mm. church will not start mm. with microphones on stages. It mm. will start with meals around tables. What do you think about what Dan White had to say there? Yeah, I mean, I I think you're right that that's a very particular, like he's more of a missional kind of church planting model, mm-hmm. a little more organic. So that would make sense to me that that would be his point of view. And I think there's some rightness to that, mm-hmm. right? Like um, the the concept of just like relationship ultimately, and that's what we're talking about, meals around tables, like hospitality and friendship and breaking bread together really is a biblical concept of the church. And that's how, you know, we move from 
kind of a celebrity culture in church to like actually just doing and being the church together. Uh, it, it, yeah, it changes the dynamic, right? When there's no longer those walls between the person on the stage and a person in the auditorium or whatever around the table. Um, that said, we kind of talked about this similar concept yesterday because a little bit this is sort of like a, a mega church versus a, a kind of missional yeah. organic community uh, church model. A little bit of me wants to go like you, Brian. Why not both? Uh, like, yes. I, and part of it is I've won you over with it, that. I'll be honest. It, <laughs> yeah, it may be that like I because I go around and speak at a lot of places. I might be the person with the microphone on the stage, right? And mm. I'm never on like these large, massive scales. But like you know, I do this in small to medium sized churches and other events. And so, I do believe in the power of the the spoken word, the preached word the declared word. I really do. And I don't want us to ever end that. Now, does it have to be with a microphone on a stage? Probably not. It can be all different models. But again, I think there are like, I'm just very, I'm very wary of it's not this, it's this, because I think the spirit of God is bigger than that. Mm. And I think the spirit of God in some locations around the globe is still working on stages and also around tables and also in driveways and also uh, through parents and their kids and also in prison and also oh, you know what i mean like i just like i don't know that we need to limit what god right. can do at the same time i understand what dan white jr is saying the heart of this is let's not be about performance let's not be about platforming a certain speaker let's be about actual building relationship and that's where movement happens and there's truth to that yes. certainly yes uh i i love that i've gotten you to immediately think in that way with the why not <laughs> both because when i read that why that was that was the first thing that i thought was oh, interesting okay i agree with him like ultimately yeah. faith grows churches strengthen get healthy things move forward around tables in community at coffee shops uh, after the show today, our church, I'm going back to church to do a men's barbecue, like eating and talking and laughing yeah. and making relationship. You and I were talking yesterday about the church picnic. Like these things matter, mm -hmm. but it also matters what is proclaimed from the stage, from the pulpit, from whatever yeah. on Sunday morning. Like that yeah. also really matters. Like I, I actually think this is a legitimate time for us to go. Why not both? Let's mm -hmm. have meals around tables. Let's have mm -hmm. good, orthodox, strong teaching spoken yes. into microphones for the collective yes. people to have. Um, what would you say those two – talk to people about the dinner table one, though, because some people might be like, I don't understand why that helps the church at all. Like, what are we even talking about having dinner? I hardly have dinner with my family right now around the table. I know. So I know. So why – why the focus on the the table and the meal? Yeah, I mean, because this could easily be brushed aside as a trend. Like you see people kind of tweet or post something like this every few weeks, right? And But I do think if we're thinking biblically, especially about like an Acts 2 model of the church, we see that like having meals together was a regular part of what it meant for a community to follow Jesus together. And so there is like relationship building, friendship building happens over meals. And the truth is the table sort of breaks down any um, like dividing wall because you invite your neighbor who doesn't know Jesus over to dinner and develop an actual friendship with them 
uh, both parties are mutually growing and being mutually transformed. And so I, I think there's a, um, there's a goodness in, I mean, I'm an introvert. I don't love having people over to my house, but like if, <laughs> if we're talking like invite people out, out to dinner for the table, like that's yeah. how I want to develop a friendship. I, I think the idea is just relationship. I mean, I, I really think that's it. And then the, um, yeah, a meal and hospital. I also think hospitality is one of those things that like, it's a biblical description of elders. And yet I don't know that we take our hospitality very seriously. And hospitality would be inviting people over, especially people who don't have access to food, but inviting people who you wouldn't normally invite into your home for a meal. Yeah. So there are some biblical qualifications or biblical descriptions of this. What do you think, Brian? Yeah, I would say if we actually believe the church's family or mm -hmm. you know, if you want to take a step below family and you actually believe the church is some sort of community uh, mm -hmm. and we believe these things that we say into microphones, right? Like that's where yeah. we teach about it. If we actually believe that, then you can't build a family and never spend any time with each other. Like you right, don't, right. you know, like I, I joked before that it's hard for us to have any meal time with my family, but we still fight for it. We still do right, all we can, right. or if we're not going to have a meal, we still hang out. We still do stuff. Yeah. If yeah. you are of the persuasion to believe that church is meant to be this, this family in it together, we're, mm -hmm. we're trying to accomplish something and we're trying to push one another to on towards love and good, all this stuff. You can't do it just on Sunday morning and you yeah. can't do it just yeah, in some that's program, right. that's but right. it doesn't need to be an either or. Otherwise, yeah. if we believed it was an either or, then what we would say is, let's not on Sunday morning, don't speak, don't sing. Let's roll right. out tables and cook a breakfast right. and do that, right. uh, which some churches do. Uh, yeah, there are some church models that do that. Yeah. I think the proclamation of the word matters, uh, mm -hmm. as does the sitting around a table to hear your story mm -hmm. and to challenge one another. I think this is what always sort of bothers me with these either or statements, because we do see we do see the New Testament example of the early church meeting together for meals. We also see Paul and several of the apostles proclaiming the gospel in the public assembly to right. thousands of people. Right. We saw Jesus do that. So I think like, again, this is where we go. Why not both? We <laughs> see examples in the scripture of gospel movement happening because of both things. And so I don't know that we have to like. Um, what am I trying to say? Like reduce movement to just one thing. Like, let's see where God is moving and what God is inviting you to do. And then watch what God does. Amen. Amen. So gather around tables, do that. That's important. Yes. Also gather on Sunday morning, uh, for, to hear from the microphone, to use his mm -hmm. language, to yeah. do that. And then both. And we believe the church will be in a much healthier spot. It will continue to grow. <laughs> Aubrey, that music only means one thing. It is grinds my gears. It's a time for me, for you to just get annoyances off of our chests. Right. Like just go, right. you know what bothers me? Again, let us give the preface we always give. Fully, <laughs> fully understand that there are bigger problems in the world. There's still a war in the Ukraine. There's still yes. inflation issues. Uh, yes. There's all of this stuff. But... If we allow the little stuff to grow in us uh, and not be dealt with, I think what happens is we just explode. It becomes a big thing. So 
That's why we created this little thing called Grinds My Gears. Get the we little things like, off our chest. Yeah, get the little things off our chest. And also, you gave us a microphone, so this is what happens. Because <laughs> we get to do it. <laughs> so in the past, right. we've talked about people who uh, name their dogs uh, uh, human names or push them mm-hmm. around in strollers. We've talked about right. other things. Uh, But let me start with one, Aubrey, that I think is going to be right up your alley because... Ooh, I can't wait to hear this. Of the two of us, you go to 10 movies for every movie that I go to, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. But with that said, when I go to the movie theater, I love it. The chairs are comfy now. Like, remember back in the day when you had the kind (laughs) of... Like I, the Wheaton Theater, right? When we were in college, yeah, the one dollar like theater, those foldable chairs—they were like metal, and you could like barely squeeze in there. They were, I mean, the chairs oh, were so uncomfortable, yes, and they were yes. sticky. The floor was sticky from spills, yes. probably that were six yes. months old, right? Like yes, and there was like no place. There's no place to like put your popcorn, right? You right? Like, to, there's not like a holder. You know, you got to like put it in your lap. Yes. you had to really want to see a movie. But the beauty of it, the trade-off was that the tickets were a dollar. And That's fair. So, That's fair. You can got I, what you paid for. This is as, as an aside. My favorite memory of the Wheaton Theater. I was in high school and came out to visit my brother, my older brother, who was at Wheaton yes. at the college. Yes. And he's like, yes. why don't we go see a movie? So it's high school me and uh, college <laughs> brother, two young men. Super cool. Do you want to know what movie uh-huh. we went and saw at the, at the Wheaton Theater? Titanic. The Bodyguard. <laughs> <laughs> Even better. Even better. Oh, man. That's but awesome. here's my grinds, my gears. You go to the movie theater. You've snuck your snacks in like my family does, right? Like you've bought, you've got milk duds and whatever in your pockets. Uh, yep. You, you've, you've got your, you've, you're there. You're ready to go. Yep. And it's not even loud talking. It's the person who just continues to whisper. It, it is, is so annoying. Like almost I'd rather you loud talk. Because 100%. that whispering and giggling, and yes. it's usually junior yes. hires or whatever, it but it sometimes is. it's adults. And and it really annoys me in the previews, but man, does it bother me when it, when the when it, like the actual movie starts. Recently we were at a movie and this happened, and I about wanted to just reach over the chair and do non. Do you ever do, do it? Are no, you... but I wanted okay. to do non-pastoral things to these people, right? Non-Christ-loving <laughs> things. My guess is, as somebody who frequents the movies as often as you do, this has to drive you up a wall. Oh, it makes me so mad, and I I'm not yet that adult who's ter- looking around going shh shh. But I am so close. Like it is about to happen, and I'm going to be that person. But I have a, I have someone in my life. I can't actually remember who, but I remember them saying one time they never go see movies when they first open for that very reason because they oh, want, no. a, they want a, an audience that is um, like less excited. And not as crowded so that they don't have to deal with the whispers and the yelling. And I oh, and I love seeing movies right when they come out. But now I'm kind of like, maybe there's some wisdom in that. Like you wait a couple weeks. The crowd's not as like amped up. Uh, it's not as crowded and you don't have to deal with the whispers. But I would much rather I want you yelling at the theater or yelling at the screen more than I want you just like whispering in the back. Of the oh, my gosh. And yes. And it is obno- it's obnoxious. I think actually... <laughs> I'm on a high horse. I'm grinding gears here. Uh, I would probably ask for my money back. And I think I probably have in the past if it's been that like really obnoxiously distracting. Yeah. And they'll usually give you your money back. 
For real. So you'll leave the movie. Yeah, or no, I'll watch the whole thing, and then after I'll be like that. I couldn't hear anything. It was so distracting. There were some teens behind us, and usually they'll give you credit Hold for on. a movie or something. Call me a Karen, but I'll do it. Hold on. You will, you will watch the entire movie and then yeah. ask for your money back. I mean, I'm not saying, like, I do this regularly, but I have done that in the past, and, like, that was a terrible experience of movie watching. Is that not the like equivalent of going to a restaurant, eating the entire meal, and then saying you didn't like it? Maybe it might be, but I mean, I give a lot of money to the movie yes, theater, you so do. I don't, I don't, I don't question it. You're the platinum member. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. If there was VIP, I would have it. Excuse yeah, me, you're sure. in my seat. Get out of so my. So, did you seat. go to a movie recently, or were you just kind of thinking about that? So it's been a little while. I told you within the last month, I went and saw Top Gun, and it happened there. Yeah. It was like, uh, oh, these people better be quiet. These people better yeah, be quiet. Yeah. All right, what about you? Yeah. What do you got on? What do you got on deck? Okay, I feel like we're picking on the younger generation, and I really don't want to be those old people I do. that do See, that. See, that's where we're I'm different. I want to be okay. that person now. You want to be yes. that person. I have been around a number, and this is not my kids, okay, but a number of younger generation, and I'm not going to say millennials, like I mean Gen Zers, but that are probably in their 20s now, okay, uh-huh. who just cannot get off their phone. And I mean everything from, and look, I'm very active on social media, but I mean, they are, you're out to dinner or whatever with them and they're filming everything for their Instagram reels, or they're constantly making videos to turn into Instagram reels later, or they're posting nonstop and you literally can't have a conversation because the, the phone has taken over. I was with a Gen Zer recently, a group of us going out to coffee, and she just took another FaceTime call and went and sat at a different table ah. and didn't have it. Literally. And I said, do you have to take that phone call now? Because I was a little offended, to be honest. Again, I'm an old person. And this person was like, yes, I do. And proceeded to be on a totally different FaceTime call at a different table at a Starbucks the entire time. I feel like you should have gotten I- up and left right there. Right well, there. Uh, we just we all stayed and had our conversation, the five of us that were still there, and then, then we just got up and we were like, see ya. Like it's it's to the point in my mind, this is where I know I sound old. It's rude. And it like yes. makes you feel like, oh, they don't want to be here with me yes. or they don't want to build a relationship with me because whatever's happening on the social media world or on the phone or the other person is more important. The imaginary people are more important than the real people. And in one sense, it's good for me to remember when I pick up my phone and check my text or, you know, I'm not present with the people. It's a good reminder. But there is a way that it goes too far. And that's what I'm seeing where it's constant. Can I tell you another thing that grinds my gears kind of connected to this? Yes. It's the dumb Apple Watches and people who constantly you're with them and they're constantly they get a text message they get a text message and you can't see me now but if you could see me here in the studio i'm looking at my phone constantly and like i check my text messages so again this might be pot calling kettle black but like on the phone on your wrist it's so distracting so i I, there's my grinds my gears i could see i am such a fan of your pettiness because i (laughs) I cannot agree more about the Apple Thank Watches. You. People oh. just constantly looking down. 
My, and this annoying. is coming. I do not own an Apple Watch, but this is coming from someone whose own wife has said, I think you might have addiction problems with your phone. So I get mm. the annoyances yes. of people who yes. check the phone and this and that. Yes. With that said, I do feel like the Apple Watch is a whole nother level because you're like, it's a new layer. Are you checking the time again? Are you tired? Like, are you checking? Oh, right. you're looking. Right. And like. It's especially the people who are like, I'm not going to check my phone, but I'm going to check my Apple Watch. Oh, my gosh. I couldn't be more with. Oh, it is so Kevin asked me recently if I wanted one. And I was like, no, do not. I never want an Apple Watch. My wife has one. I do not want to be that person. But she is not that person. She has one, but she is not that person. But yes. Good. Good. I I never I'm a I'm so appreciative of your pettiness. I'm I'm I'm. Thank you. Good. So be quiet in movies. Yes. Or stream it at home if, if you can't be. Or stream be. it at home. Yeah. And uh, put your phone away when you're with other people, and put your phone including away. your Apple Watch. All right. That was good. That was good. Um, Brian, one of our coworkers yesterday posted something about the schools, and we don't necessarily need to go into that, but basically said, hey, don't co-parent with the government. Mm. And interestingly, I was reading uh, some news yesterday, a story coming out of O. Iowa. Let me let me just share it with you, okay? And then I'd, I'd love to know your thoughts about it. Um, Iowa school district sued by parents for student gender transition plans not involving guardians. So a parent activist organization has filed a federal lawsuit against an Iowa school district over its policy of facilitating gender transitions for students without parental notice or approval. Um, and I, I probably can leave it there. But essentially, there's a policy in this school district that the schools can help create a gender support plan when a student claims they no longer identify with their biological sex and wish to adopt a new gender identity. And the parents do not or the guardians do not have to be involved at all. They don't have to even know that it's happening. I am deeply concerned about that. Uh, But I want to know what you think. This is outrageous. This is yeah. craziness. This is everything that people who are like, oh, you're just fear mongering in this. This is it. If yeah. you read it, to, uh, it goes on further to say, because we're not just talking about, uh, oh, little Johnny or, or whatever can use a different name, which is a problem. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. But yeah. it says without any knowledge or input from the child's parents, it requires all school staff and students to address the student in question by the preferred name and pronoun. And it goes on to say... Uh, They will change the students' names on official documents and allow students to use bathroom and locker room facilities and participate in athletics based on their chosen identity apart from their parents. How how is this even possible? And Aubrey, this is – you and I have had many talks about this. Mm -hmm. Uh, You and I are not fear-based people when it comes to this. Right, right. But this is nuts. And if I lived in the school district – this would be enough for me to pull my child and go, yeah, no, I don't want to fight against this. If this is the trajectory you're going to go, mm-hmm. then why in the world would I put my child in that? Like the the level to which some people and it's a minority, but schools or government or other things yeah. are are wanting to work around parents and move away from parents and and, and remove parents. Is if you had told me this ten years ago, I would have said, "What crazy dystopian movie is that?" Like what? Right, right. But now that it's happening, can you imagine? Like, what's the end game here? I go to my kids' parent-teacher conference, and they're like, "Oh, by the way, here in the classroom, 
we call your son by by his girl name that he asked and i'd be like wait and that's what? on his official documents and he's right. changing in a locker room and right. using about i'd sue the school i would do everything Absolutely. at that point because yeah. they're kids and yes we have to remember that even in this gender conversation that most yeah. research shows when it comes to children they will quote unquote grow out of it 80% of them by the time yeah. they're out of school. So why we're yeah. allowing major decisions to be this is lunacy and anyone in that school district should and I this you know me. This isn't mm-hmm. my normal bet. No, it's not your normal. Anyone mm-hmm. in that school district should go, my kid is gone. Like we are yeah. out of here. Yeah. We are going yeah. private school. We're moving. Right. We're doing something right. because this is too big right. of a deal and too much of a thumbing of their nose at parents to be even even remotely okay. Well, and this is the part that you and I have talked about several times. Like the headline isn't even necessarily all of the gender stuff. Although I do think that's a headline we've talked about before yep. and we'll keep talking about. The headline here is the removal of parents. Like, that's the part that I am like, even if you are the most progressive, Mm -hmm. liberal family, there is no way you want any school making any decision around your kids, especially if it involves their identity, their sexuality, their their gender, their pronouns, especially those personal things. But I mean, any decision outside of the parents, like it is absolutely appalling to me that a school feels like they have the authority to make such a decision in, in our country, especially that's the part that I'm like, I, I, and this is, this is where I think is so frustrating to me is we're not allowing kids to be kids anymore. Yes. We're not protecting them as kids. It's starting to look like and feel like grooming and abuse. And I'm with you, Brian, like we are so pro public school. Like we have fought to keep our kids in the public school. And yet if this kind of thing crept into our school district, I would be like, I'm sorry, we're done. Like you have yeah. overstepped your boundaries. If you're no longer including parents in these life altering decisions yeah, listen to this and, and we're talking kids yeah. like this is under 18 Li- okay go ahead. listen to how this goes on the lawsuit says the plan means school officials will edit students names on official documents and allow students to use bathroom and locker room facilities and participate in athletics based on their chosen identity furthermore you ready for this the yeah. lawsuit alleges that the policy actually prohibits school officials from disclosing a gender support plan to the student's parents, even when the parent asks if one exists for their child. If I'm anywhere, mm. my kids are a little older now, but they're still of this age. If yeah. I'm anywhere, school, church, business, yeah. if I'm anywhere where the leadership of said organization in this case, a school is actively working against me as a parent with my kids. Right. I will promise you that will be my, my kid's last day in whatever that is. If they're telling me, Oh, don't tell your parents. Oh, this, but the problem with this, Aubrey, as we've talked about before is the parents got to find out at some point, if they don't find out this might get too far down the road uh, yeah. And all of a sudden your kid is making life changing decisions I mean, and saying things to you about how you've held them back and all the stuff. And you're like, what in the world? Like my heart goes out to parents who are caught up in I this. Know, like, I don't know what I you know. do, but parents out there, I would say if you're anywhere where the, uh, the authority of figures or whatever are actively working against you as the parent, 
it is your responsibility to get your child out of that thing, whatever yeah. that thing yeah. is, no matter how much it inconveniences your life. This is nuts and craziness. Yeah, it's it's nuts and craziness. And I don't know what else there is to say about it. But I think parents like especially parents like us who have your kids in the public schools, don't you know, don't be fear. Don't be afraid, but don't be naive and talk to your kids. Have these conversations at home so that you can prevent these conversations being happening at school without your knowledge. Make sure you're opening the door to conversation and just be aware of where this might be happening. And one other anyway, thing that I would say, wild. Yeah, one other yeah, thing that ahead, I would Brian. say, if people are like, oh, you're just transphobic or homophobic or whatever. Yeah. yeah. I don't want my kids making decisions about their education without my wife and I being looped in. Mm-hmm. Like about what level mm-hmm. of math class they're taking. Absolutely. What, so you're going to tell me if I'm going to have input into the level of math that my kid is having right. that I shouldn't right. have input into their gender identity plan right. is, right. oh, my God, I don't know where this ends. This is craziness. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this continue unfolds and, and what happens with the lawsuit. So anyway, lots, lots to think about. Uh, Brian, maybe you can. Catherine and I had a really, really deep, important discussion. Oh, I'm not used which to those. Was this. I think you'll be ready for this one. When you were gone last week, our co-host Catherine McNeil and I talked about at what point does it switch from afternoon to evening? So this is completely unscientific. So I've always in my mind, that's always been five o'clock. Okay. So I said five o'clock too. She said it was six o'clock for her. And that felt late to me. That feels late. That feels night. That feels like I feel like. It's two against one, so we've just set five o'clock. It is now officially evening, early evening, and yet still evening. Yeah, so, I think okay, that's fair. That, five o'clock feels like that the, is solved. Yeah, five o'clock <laughs> feels like it for me. Okay. In other news, that is not quite as uh, black and white and easy to uh, easy to make a decision on. Um, we're going to talk about pro life, mm-hmm. something that you and I have uh, been passionate about—a pro life stance. Um, But interestingly, Brian, I think most people out there, um, and I would say most critics of a pro-life stance would say that's just religious conviction. Mm -hmm. Like the only way you feel that way is because of your religious conviction. This is only for Christians or super religious people or what have you. But interestingly, our friend David French over at the Dispatch um, says that there is a secular argument for being pro-life. And he said that he actually learned a pro-life argument uh, from an atheist. And he says this. Interesting. This is from something over at the dispatch that he wrote recently. He said he didn't know any atheists until he went to law school. He had caricatures of them, but those all melted away when he began to make friends with some atheists who he discovers and he says were the most thoughtful, kind, and ethical people he knew who also didn't believe in God. And he said they had a high value of the human life. Why? Here's what he says. A friend once explained it to me in these memorable terms. It was because he believed that life was the secular version of a miracle. The idea that evolutionary processes could lead to the creation of a person who could think, feel, and love was one of the most remarkably improbable things that he could imagine. The natural world was a wonder for him, and the natural world included you and me. Mm. This is no fringe view, David French says. Atheists are extraordinarily concerned about the environment. Atheists and agnostics are more opposed to the death penalty than any major religious subgroup in America. Mm. Yet atheists are also overwhelmed 
overwhelmingly pro-choice, but that does not mean that arguments against abortion are inherently religious. One might say that it means that many atheists are inconsistent, just as many atheists rightly challenge Christians to square their opposition to abortion with their support for the death penalty. I would challenge my atheist friends to learn about the distinct and separate biological humanity of the unborn child and square their support for abortion with their opposition to the death penalty. So this, Brian, kind of goes to something we talked about yesterday, which is that you can have a, if you're going to be pro-life, like be pro-life all Mm -hmm. the way. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of pro-life stances you can take. Basically, David French goes on to say that uh, being being pro-life is not an inherently religious argument. It is a moral argument. And moral arguments are not the exclusive prerogative of people of faith. Mm. What do you think about that? I think it's brilliant. I think David French is right here. I think it really... You know, we like to have things simple in our heads. I think it's very simplistic to say Christians are against abortion or religious people, Catholics, you know, whatever, are against abortion. Uh, Secularists and atheists, agnostics, whatever, are pro-abortion and progressives are pro. I've got people in my church that I know are pro-abortion. And I think David French makes a great point that it's not a – while I would say our faith is – very much informs this conversation. I don't think it determines this conversation. Mm, And so therefore uh, I think that goes both ways. And I don't think you should assume everybody in your church is like staunchly pro-life. And I don't think you should assume everybody who doesn't go to church. The statistics might favor one over the other. Yeah. uh, But I think David French really challenges us here to go, this is more complex, but also it's more of a moral discussion Mm -hmm. than it is a religious discussion. Yeah. Interestingly, David French talks about his atheist friend, uh, Nat Henthoff, who made him question what it meant to be thoroughly and comprehensively pro-life rather than merely anti-abortion. Again, I'm quoting David French here. He said, indeed, he helped me. He's talking about his friend, uh, Nat Hentoff. He helped teach me that one can't truly be effectively anti-abortion absent a comprehensive worldview that values life at all stages and through all perspectives, including philosophical, moral, cultural, and political. Does it mean me? It does not mean he made me progressive. He didn't. But it does mean he helped reshape the lens through which I view public policy. And he goes on to say, an atheist did that for me and I'm forever in his debt. So why do you think this matters, Brian, that that you can have a pro-life point of view outside of Christianity for, mm. from a Christianity, from a secular argument? Like what, what difference does that make? Why do you think David French is even taking the time to write about this? Because I think he wants to have the conversation versus um, just like everyone putting people in boxes. Oh, you go to church, you have the, it's, I think he's wanting to say the abortion debate is, is an important debate for people to have regardless of your belief system. Yeah. Uh, that, yeah. And that you need to know why you believe abortion is bad or abortion is fine. Like it's not, yeah. well, I don't believe in Jesus, so therefore abortion's okay. Those are, that's not the litmus test, right? And so mm. uh, there are, and I think David French is wanting to expand so people like you and I he's wanting to expand our minds and go hey there are people who don't believe the same as you out there about Jesus but who do believe the same about life and about yeah. these kinds of things and so I think that's why this becomes important like I was reading later uh, David says uh, it does not take a religious believer to understand that biological realities carry with them moral implications 
Mm. And it does not take a religious believer to place great weight on the value of an unborn uh, child. And he goes on to say why mm. that's important. And I, I would say real fast, one more reason this is important is because you might be out there and not be a believer of right. in Jesus and go, well, therefore, I right. can't be against mm. abortion. Or you might be mm. a believer and like, I don't really know what I think, but obviously I have to be this. Yeah. Like, no, think it through. Right. Do the work. Yeah. And and f- come to a conclusion as to why you think uh, what you think about abortion versus what, you know, other people have told you. Yeah. And, and I think ultimately this is something we keep circling back to. But two things that I am just kind of revisiting right now in my own thoughts about this issue. One, what does it mean to be comprehensively pro-life like David French is talking about rather than merely anti-abortion? And then two, Brian, something that you've really, I think, like hit the nail on the head with is what do you think is happening inside of a woman's body? Is that a human life or not? Mm -hmm. And that makes all the difference. Uh, Do you believe that there's yes. a, like viability there or not. And I do personally. And so therefore for me, like abortion is, is not an ethical option, but I think that's ultimately what you have to wrestle with. And the knowledge that both men and women need to know is what is actually going on right. in inside of the woman's womb. And when is this unborn life actually have life? Once we have that information, I think that helps us make a more informed decision where we stand on this. Anyway, really, really interesting to think about different ways to view and oppose abortion. It is the end of the show on Tuesday evening. And at the end of every show, we'd love to bring you something either challenging, spiritually encouraging, or something just to put a smile on your face. We carry and cover a lot of heavy things, a lot of heavy news. So every once in a while, we like to go to a place called theweek.com to find some good news. They sort of aggregate good news stories from the previous week and share things that aren't all bad. Remind us that there's good news in the world. So, Brian, I'll share the first one. You ready for it? I'm ready. Okay. A man reunites with a woman he helped deliver on a San Francisco sidewalk 34 years ago. (laughs) All right. This is wild. Patrick Holmes always hoped that one day he'd get to meet the baby girl he helped deliver on a San Francisco sidewalk. This year, that day finally came when he was reunited with Cersei Hughes, now 34. On June 29, 1988, Combs was walking to work when he came across a woman on a street corner giving birth. He got there at the right time as the baby landed in his outstretched hands. Combs shared his story with the San Francisco Chronicle. It made the front page. Hughes, meanwhile, was later adopted and raised in Virginia. I vaguely knew that the story of my birth was sort of a big deal, she told the Chronicle, so I asked a friend to type the keywords crystal, baby, and born on the street into Ancestry.com's website. After her friend found the Chronicle's article, Hughes contacted Combs on Facebook, much to his surprise. The pair recently met in San Francisco, where Combs took Hughes to the spot where she was born and explained the whole event in detail. Being able to connect with Hughes was like an answered prayer, Combs told the Chronicle. Learning about her first day definitely hit me super hard, but it's not a sad feeling, Hughes said. It's a feeling that so much awesome humanity happened right here on the sidewalk. I love that story. That's a great story. As one who has been in the room for childbirth and for uh-huh. you as one who has given birth. Yes. Is that a questionable description a- of 
and then it just fell out onto my arms. That's not usually how that works. No, no, no. Details were definitely skipped in that. And I I feel a little bit like the absence of the mom here who was having to give birth on a sidewalk is sort of a painful, sad part that nobody went into. Like the tragedy is definitely skipped over here. But no, no, no. You don't just happen to walk by as the baby lands in your hands. Look at that. Look what I caught. Yeah, no. Right, right. Nope. That's not that's not childbirth. Nope. Number two, this mother daughter pilot duo made history in the sky. Captain Holly Pettit had a very special announcement on a recent flight from Denver to St. Louis. Her daughter, First Officer Keeley Pettit, was her co-pilot. The Hmm. Pettits are the first mother-daughter pilot team in the history of Southwest Airlines. I just keep using this word surreal, Holly said. You have this little baby, you're holding her in your arms, and in the blink of an eye, there she is sitting on the flight deck next to you. It's been a surreal and a dream come true. Holly has spent the last 18 years with Southwest, while Keeley, 25, was hired in May. As long as she can remember, I knew I wanted to fly with my mom, and it was just like my mom said, so surreal and incredible. The pair's inaugural flight was incredible, she said, and they're looking forward to the next adventure. It was just so awesome and so much fun. So I don't care where we go or when we get to do it, but any time we would get to fly together again would just be spectacular. Wow. Mother-daughter flight together. I love that. That is a, that's a really, that's a cute story. Glad I'm they landed that it. To a pu- I'm, well, really, that could have been a tragic story. I'm going to send that to a pilot friend of mine and see if uh, he and his son maybe want to try to like match them mm. and be the first father-son pilot team. All right, here we go. A Detroit man's Hollywood dream is coming true. Robert Robert McIntyre Jr. had a mission when he left Detroit for Los Angeles in 2009, make it in Hollywood as a director. Now, after a few hiccups, McTyre is moving up in the industry, having worked as a set lighting technician on Jordan Peele's new movie, Nope, and on the television Westworld, The Flight Attendant, and Mayans MC. While in Michigan, he earned a degree in media arts and interdisciplinary film studies, but started working at a Los Angeles at Los Angeles International Airport when he wasn't able to find any industry jobs. He soon lost that gig and began sleeping in his car, coming very close to going back to Detroit. It got really real, McIntyre told the Detroit Metro Times, but then things started turning around. He met his current fiance and got a job as a security guard at Warner Brothers. He went back to school to learn set lighting and landed a universal traineeship, which brought him to the Nope set. Today, he's part of the crew working on a film directed by actor Chris Pine. McIntyre told the Metro Times he's learning the skills necessary to reach his final goal of making his own films. There's a lot of things you have to know so I can go from lighting to director of photography, which then gives me the tools to make the jump to director, he said. Cool. Way to go, Robert McIntyre. No, Robert... McTyre. Yeah, you struggle. That looks like it should be McIntyre, but that is McTyre, it looks like. so. McTyre. McTyre. Okay, last, uh, no, my last one. You have one more after this. Oklahoma yep. City Letter Carrier celebrates 70 years of delivering mail. Aww. Johnny Bell could have retired many years ago, but there's a reason why at 93, he's still working as a mail carrier. Mm-mm. This is something I do because I enjoy it, he said recently. And on Friday, Bell celebrated his 70th year with the post office. Uh, and he's been doing it in Oklahoma City the entire time. He started at 23 and is the longest tenured USPS employee in the country. He just loves everyone, and he's a way of being magic and just drawing everyone together to where they just all felt like family, they said. A lot has changed since Bell's first day, starting with his pay. Back then, he earned $1.81 an hour to celebrate his Come years on. of service. Bell's co-workers got him a cake, and after the get-together, he got back to sorting mail. 
He is truly a public servant. 70 years. Wow. 1952. That's crazy. Wow. Okay, so this is, I'm going a little dark here, but I grew up in Oklahoma City, and there was a big post office shooting in 1986. Wow. And now it was in Edmond, which is North Oklahoma City, but I'm curious if he did about... <laughs> no, that is not what I was going to say. Just curious what his memories are of that dark day in Oklahoma City. Interesting. So uh, anyway, I'm glad he was celebrated, and that is a long time to be a public servant. Way to go, Johnny Bell. All right, here's the last story. These volunteers are keeping the Appalachian Trail clean and accessible. Equipped with a variety of tools and a healthy respect for nature, an army of volunteers from Georgia to Maine work hard to keep the Appalachian Trail clean. The Appalachian Trail Conservancy has volunteers in 14 states that spend hundreds of thousands of hours each year maintaining the trails. Mm. Their work involves using rakes to clear debris and digging channels to guide water so it doesn't pool in one place. The trail allows people to safely see nature up close, and we want to make sure that it can be joined, enjoyed by those of us living now and also future uh, generations. Wayne Limberg of the Potomac Appalachian Trail Club told the Christian Science Monitor. Increased trail usage during the pandemic led to an increase in litter and graffiti. Mm. And volunteers are busier than ever, but it's worth it. I've gone out in all seasons, all kinds of weather, and every single time I've never regretted it because you always see something beautiful, volunteer Russell Riggs told the Monitor. I think love is probably not too strong of a word. Mm. I feel like the people who are littering and graffitiing, the, I mean, like that's, they're not good humans, but the other ones who are helping clean it up are the good the, ones. Are they the good, good guys yeah. in this story? Yeah. The, yeah. Hey, there's more people out there. So it's dirtier and, and messed up I is mean. a little bit of a, of a sign of who we are as humanity. Yeah. It's a little bit of a, a sign of the truth of humanity, a little bit depressing. Well, there was some good news in that depressing news as well. And we will be back again tomorrow. That's some more good news for you from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.